Welcome back. This is going to be part one of looking at the story and life of Hezekiah. Um, I called this series the Hezekiah and the Second Chance People of God. And um, I will admittedly say I'm a little bit distracted. I had to take a break for several hours. And um, I'm out here at the barn and I'm having to run off my cows that are uh, being a grand nuisance. I'm sure there are people back in my previous stages of my life who think these things are hilarious. Um, that I'm out here in a barn hitting the head of a cow with a, I don't know, 100-year-old tobacco stick, if you even know what that is, and uh, trying to get them to be quiet long enough for me to record this. <laughs> oh my goodness. So stick with me as I, I attempt to stick with myself and what I'm doing here. And so we looked a little bit into laying some groundwork about the people of God, what it means to be the people of God. How does that even work? Are we being those people? Do we know what we're saying when we say, well, yeah, I'm, I'm in the people of God. Sure, I know Jesus. Me and a brother had lunch and we talked about the mysterious phrase of, well, yeah, I have a relationship with Jesus. You know, a personal relationship. I don't have just have a relationship. I have a personal relationship with Jesus. Like, Y'all, I just want to get to a point in my life that when I hear that phrase or, or the other half a dozen catchphrases that we've all heard and said our whole lives, to just have the courage to say, brother, could you tell me what that means to you? What does that mean when you say that? We won't go through the laundry list of all of the phrases we say but literally don't know what we're saying outside of the one that's on the table today about being the people of God, being God's people on the earth. And so that's really what this is about, is, is looking at the scriptural patterns of what the people of God did and are now to do. And so in light of that, we're going to read several scriptures, um, Second Chronicles, Second Kings, and we're going to begin to just kind of put our feet into the life of Hezekiah and kind of get ourselves a little bit more familiar with him. Who was he? What did he do? What did he believe? What was his motivation? What was his history? What was his upbringing? How did he become king? How did he become the type of king that he was? What did he challenge the people of Judah to do when he became king over Judah? Because these things all have a significance if we give ourselves to them. Um, much of what I would say has been just kind of lost in the historical approach to the Old Testament scriptures, which is just kind of like we read them like they are fiction, historical fiction perhaps, or just a history book where, okay, I've added that knowledge of history to my natural mind, and now I know that's what happened with 
the lineage of kings in the Old Testament. Okay, got that. And, and admittedly, that's where I've been for the majority of my life is just in that just kind of casual reading for knowledge's sake approach to the Old Testament scriptures, especially when you start reading in Kings and Chronicles about the accounts of the kings. I've read them from an information-based approach, but really it's kind of, up until recently, um, kind of remained there, kind of remained very just informational. And the, the origin of, of how I even landed here is very interesting, and um, I do want to share that because it's very much important. Um, my wife and I have been um, really convicted, I guess is just a good word. Um, I do want to use that word appropriately, but like, uh, I don't know, burdened, um, challenged um, about our lack of observing the calendar of God, the biblical feasts. You know, we're a people who celebrate a lot of things. We're a we're a celebratory people, and I know we're created to be that way because that was that was the the outset of the plan for man is when God gave these feasts, these rehearsals, you know, I've heard them call, and, and that's you know, it's very appropriate in many cases, um, of things to come, but they were on the calendar of God, and they were to be and are to be in many respects, and that's is a debatable question, proposal, um, and remembered, okay, observed. And we observe so many things now, for what reason? And this is kind of where I'm at, is like, why do I observe these things that are on my calendar that I would buy at Walmart? Okay, well today, all right, today is, I mean, I'm just going to use this as an example. Today is Father's Day. Oh, that's on my calendar. So the man who said, hey, today is going to be Father's Day, I have to feel obligated to observe that day because someone said that. We just had that mere days ago, weeks before Mother's Day. Okay, well, why is it Mother's Oh, I don't know. I don't know, but like, we need to love your mother acknowledge her, observe Mother's Day. Okay, well, why am I doing that? Well, it's on the calendar. Come on, right? I mean, we observe. Don't even get me started on all of the other, can we just say festivals, observances, that we recognize as people who say boldly, I am not of this world, brother. I don't bow down to the gods of the men, of men and the kingdoms of men. No, sir. Okay, well, I ask myself, is that not doing that? According to a calendar that a man made in modern days and handed over and said, hey, today everybody in this nation is doing this. And, and you know what? This is just what you do. And if you don't, let's just be honest. If you don't call your mom on Mother's Day, hey, do you love your mom? Don't you love your mother? What, you didn't, 
you didn't call your father and tell him that, you know, you're so thankful for him and you hope he's proud of you. And, you know, I mean, all these images, cards and, and gifts, and that's what you're supposed to do, right? <laughs> we are a people who keep observances. But what about the observances that God instated for his people? That's where I'm at today. What about those things? What about that? And so, I propose that question. What about these things? Observances of remembering what? The works of the Lord throughout his people. All of history points to remembering what God has done. So one thing that we wanted to, wanted to do this year, instigated by my wife, is we really need to do something different about Passover. More than a meal, more than a, a trying to muster up like what did they do, you know, in Jewish history, in symbolism, and, you know, symbolic meal items. Like, what can we do that's like the heart of God in the observing of what took place at the Passover? Like, something deeply spiritual about the observance of God's hand demonstrated through a people, upon a people, on behalf of a people, for His glory. And so in that, she was really spending time on doing things with that. She was studying every evening. We would talk about it. I knew she was praying. She would, we would pray, God, help, help us to know what it is is within this. But I just really wasn't, I realized I wasn't giving myself to it very much. So I decided the week or 10 days leading up to it, we had committed to do something, initiate something um, for our fellowship here. And so being, you know, feeling that press of responsibility of like, wait a minute, <laughs> why am I not doing a bigger part in this? Why am I not taking on my role in giving myself to this? And so I sat down, I remember Everybody had left here after a meal on Sunday, and um, I think probably my son laid down to rest, and I just took my Bibles and notebook out to the carport, and I sat down, and I just started compiling verses that referenced Passover, um, somewhat methodically just to, to have a starting point, really. To have a place of origin to begin to compile. All right, God, I'm kind of gathering these accounts of Passover and like, and literally, like, all right, Lord, I'm believing that you're going to give us some direction. And so, as I did that, one of the first places I went, I believe it was the second spot I actually read it outside of the actual Passover event, was the story of King Hezekiah. And the interesting thing is, um, me and my family, we were traveling out of state, so we were gone during the observance of Passover on the present day calendar. Um, another family, I believe, was gone the same weekend or, or right on one side or the other. And so 
as far as like true observance, we knew we couldn't do that. We couldn't do it the way that we felt, even though we couldn't have described what we were feeling, that we felt we were supposed to do. We knew we couldn't do that according to the specifics of when on the calendar. And so, Kristen started looking into some more scriptures about the, what you could call like the second chance Passover. Um, that basically was for anybody who was traveling or was deemed unclean at, quote, the first Passover, the real Passover, had another chance to come in and observe and recognize and remember the Passover. And so she started just presenting the idea of like, what if we approach it from this? Like, you know, it's still something. In the book of Numbers, I believe, it talks about that. The, the observance, the second chance observance. And so maybe we can do that. And she had been looking into that specifically for a couple of weeks. And I knew that, but I didn't know much else. And so long story short, I landed on King Hezekiah in the story. And so as I'm reading it, and I, I'm not going to get ahead of myself too far, but I started reading something and I'm like, oh my gosh, wait a minute. They're observing the second chance Passover. Is this what Kristen was talking about? I remember calling for her from the carport like, Kristen, come here. I think I've found something. <laughs> and when she came out, I said, I'm literally, y'all, I'm literally like, I can't believe it. And so I read it to her. I said, is that what you were talking about? Is that what you were saying? She's like, that's exactly what's in numbers. But in a completely different context. A completely different time frame. But that's the exact same thing. I haven't even seen that, is what she was saying. So I was hooked. I was captivated at what I had found. Not because I had found something, but because God had led me to find something of what we were looking for in here somewhere. Some substance of like, this is what God is saying. Even though I seemingly stumbled upon it, it was exactly what Kristen, my wife, had been looking into. And so I'm just going to kind of paint a little picture of Hezekiah. And now I'm just going to read the text because there's so much within it for us to learn. So who was Hezekiah? He ruled the land of Judah. He was king over Judah after his father Ahaz. Now there's not a whole lot in the scriptures about King Ahaz, his father. But as we will get to King Hezekiah, you might think he was like, man, King Hezekiah must have been the awesome man he was because of his awesome upbringing. Well, that's not the case. King Ahaz was evil. He was detestable. 
He sacrificed to other gods in the temple. He sacrificed his own sons on the altar. The scriptures say, pass through the fire. He was a very unrighteous man. Evil in the sight of the Lord. I cannot imagine Hezekiah's life. One guy that teaches on it, he's, he's a scholarly type, and he had compiled, when you look at Second Chronicles and Second Kings and some stuff that um, is in just different other, other places in the Scriptures that kind of give lineage timelines. of Because, you know, obviously we're told so-and-so became king when he was 20, and he ruled 41 years, and he had the son so-and-so, and he became king at 12. And so, you know, if you do mathematics by, by compiling scriptures, one man, and I've not researched this, and, and I don't know for sure, but he came, he came up with the numbers that Ahaz may have been as young as 11 when he fathered Hezekiah. Ahaz was known to be very corrupt. If you read historical texts about him outside of the scriptures and much that's within, it's very clear he was bent on being very vile. Hezekiah did not have an honorable, an honorable father. He did not grow up saying, oh, I want to be like my dad. But interestingly, he had a mother whose name was Abijah. Abijah was his mom's name. We don't know much about her. She may have been a priest's daughter. It's somewhat unclear. But her name means my father is Yahweh. So if you heard somebody say, hey, my father is Yahweh, back then they would have said, hey, hey, brother, Abijah. It wasn't like insinuated that that was what her name meant. That was her name, which I find very intriguing. And I wonder what she passed on to him. I wonder what she imparted to him as that was lacking in his father, as that was void in their household, as his brothers and sisters were being sacrificed to false idols, Hezekiah somehow was preserved. Hezekiah somehow was delivered. We're not told how or why. Who knows if he wondered if he was next. I believe you would wonder that. One of Hezekiah's closest friends was a man you might know. Someone you may have heard of before. His name was Isaiah. Isaiah writes a lot in the book of Isaiah about this time period about the things that the Lord spoke through him, the prophet, to Hezekiah and the people at that time. A lot of things Isaiah talks about is, are things that came to pass during the life and the reign of King Hezekiah. And so this is one of his companions, okay? When he went around and prayed and, and, and asked for the word of the Lord, He's hanging out, y'all, with Isaiah, okay? He reigned in a time when Assyria and Egypt 
ruled pretty much everything. Assyria, I looked a little bit into them, to some more historical writings and stuff like that about like this nation, how strong they were, how mighty they were, how they were, they were considered, in a modern day term, they were undefeated. They were 400-0 <laughs> on the battlefields. No one beat Assyria. No one conquered them. If they came to where you lived, if they came to your city, if they came to your village, when they left, nothing was there. They spared nothing. They would kill everything that was alive and burn the place. And they ruled and reigned everything. And Judah was within the clutches and the rule and the reign of that kingdom. And we don't have time to go into why, but every, the, the line that came before him had appeased them, had given themselves basically to slavery to the Assyrian rule and reign. Hezekiah rebels against them. He stands up to them and said, we're not doing this anymore. We're not carrying out the the sins of our fathers. We're not bowing our knee anymore. I don't care if they kill us all. We're not going to do it. And so he rebelled. He took a stand and said, no longer will we be slaves. Overall, in very, very, very light summary, the condition of Judah that Hezekiah inherited was in very, very poor shape. Because you would think like, if, when you become king, maybe you envision just these awesome things as we look at history and we think of a king on a throne being served, being tended to with everything he desires, just sitting back and giving orders, right? That's not realistic, y'all. That's not what this picture was for Hezekiah. Hezekiah inherits a nation in shambles, in shame, in sin, in idolatry, in rebellion, in slavery, with virtually no hope. That's what he was handed over to him. It was not some desirable thing. No one would have come up to him and say, Oh, Hezekiah, man, you have got one awesome nation, brother. You've got an awesome people to rule and reign over. Hezekiah, boy, I wish I had your job. It was probably shameful. The condition of the people. But Hezekiah wasn't discouraged. He had an interesting perspective. And although he knew the condition of the people, he wasn't stuck there. Because he knew there was a way out. He knew it. Could we say that he knew my father is Yahweh? My father is Yahweh. We are idolatrous, but my father is Yahweh. We're rebellious, but my father is Yahweh. 
We are shameful. But my father is Yahweh. Right? He had to have known that and we will establish how we know that he did. Because the people that he inherited to rule over were disobedient and enslaved idolaters. And so I'm going to read some scriptures about just a few things to kind of get us started and move further and further in as we go. So I'm in 2 Chronicles chapter 29, and I'm going to read 1 through 20, which may seem like a lot of text because most things that I listen to today that I see that are casual sermons, I mean, they're start to finish, they're like 16 minutes long, (laughs) based upon a verse or two. But there's so much within these stories, these accounts, these records that we've been given that we've got to give our time to. We've got to give our attention to. Second Chronicles chapter 29. This is the, in this record, this part of the record of Hezekiah gives us the overview of what was going on as he comes into the throne to rule and reign over Judah. Starting in verse 1. Hezekiah became king when he was 25 years old. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem and his mother's name was Abijah. She was the daughter of Zechariah. He did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. Now David is not his natural father. It's an interesting thing in the scriptures that you can find that in other places. He followed in the pattern of David. So the scriptures record him as that being his father. Because we know clearly his father was Ahaz. We know that. And so he did all according to the his father David had done. In the first year of his reign, in the first month, he did something so important, y'all. Okay? We have got to pay attention to what we read and what we hear. In the first year, in the first month. Okay? Right away, Zechariah gets to something that had been stirring in him leading up to this point. I don't want to get ahead of myself. So in this first year of his reign, and in the first month of that first year, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord, and he repaired them. And he brought in the priests and the Levites, and he gathered them into the square on the east. And so just right there, that little couple of sentences, something was in that man. I have to believe that he had dreams and aspirations of like, when I become king, things are going to change. When I become king, things are going to be different around here. Because you don't walk into that position and function over a whole group of people in that day and age especially, and even in present day government, and just, oh, I have an idea. First, first year, first month. 
let's start this, 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 and this, as we will see. There was something in Hezekiah that was set and ordered and waiting for the opportunity to be instated and enacted on his, like, by himself. He had a task that I believe that when he became king, he said, now is the time. Verse 5, Hezekiah says to them, who? The priests and the Levites that he gathers in after he opens and repairs the doors of the house of the Lord. Listen to me, Levites. Consecrate yourselves now. Consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry the uncleanness out from the holy place. Our fathers have been unfaithful. Our fathers have done evil in the sight of the Lord God. Our fathers have forsaken Him. Our fathers have turned their faces away from the dwelling place of the Lord. Our fathers have turned their backs. They have also shut the doors of the porch. They have put out the lamps. They have not burned the incense or offered burnt offerings in the holy place to God of Israel. Therefore, the wrath of the Lord was against Judah and Jerusalem. He, God, has made them an object of terror, of horror, of hissing, as we see with our own eyes. For behold, our fathers have fallen by the sword, our sons, our daughters, our wives, they are all in captivity because of this. It is in my heart to make a covenant with Yahweh God of Israel that his burning anger may turn away from us. My sons, do not be negligent now, for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him. He's chosen you to minister to him. He's chosen you to be his ministers and burn incense. Then the Levites arose. Mahath, the son, and he goes on, lists some different people, specific names that we don't even have time to go into about who was there and what they did. But they assembled their brothers, they consecrated themselves, and they went in to cleanse the house of the Lord according to the commandment of the king, by the words of the Lord. So the priests went into their inner part of the house of the Lord to cleanse it, and every unclean thing which they found in the temple of the Lord, they brought out. They brought it out to the court of the house of the Lord, and the Levites received it, and they carried it out to the Kidron Valley. <coughs> Now they began the consecration on the first day of the first month. And on the eighth day of the month, they entered the porch of the Lord. Then they consecrated the house of the Lord in eight days. And they finished on the sixteenth day of the first month. Note that in your mind. Then they went in to King Hezekiah and they said, We have cleansed the whole house of the Lord the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils and the table of showbread with all of its utensils. Moreover, all the temple, the utensils which King Ahaz, your father, had discarded during his reign in his unfaithfulness. We have prepared, we have consecrated, and behold, they are before the altar of the Lord." 
Y'all, is there anybody listening to me that makes that connection? Right out of the gate. Right out of the beginning of being told who King Hezekiah even is. I would say we see immediately what we must do today. And I'm going to drive this point home throughout this entire series. This story is us. This story is the people of God today in 2019. The doors of the temple have fallen off. They are in disrepair. They are locked down. (coughs) Imagine the condition of the house of the Lord. Neglected entirely. If it was used at all, it was used for false worship to false idols. It was in shambles. His own father had defamed the house of the Lord. They had to go and even find where, where parts and pieces and, and different components of what was within it, they didn't even know where they were. But for the sake of being concise in this part, and then I'm going to close this one and we'll immediately begin part two. Hezekiah said it's time for a change. He he called the priests. He called them in. And they're they're about to be part of this story too, y'all. Because where were they? What were they doing? They had lost their way. Everything that represented the glory of God on the earth was locked up, shut down, covered in dust and weeds. Overgrown. Ignored. Forgotten. And Hezekiah says, no more. No longer is it going to be this way in Judah. And he confesses the sins of his fathers. He, he openly acknowledges the disobedience and the rebellion of the generations that preceded him. He owned up to that. Hezekiah could have made a million and one excuses that were absolutely true and valid. God, I'm sorry, but my dad, you know my dad, God. He could have looked at those doors and said, man, this is not the way it's supposed to be, but boy, you know my father. What, what, what's a man to do? Look at these people. They don't know their way. And I'm telling y'all, right now I could just explode an hour's worth of thought about that. Because all I'm saying is what I'm asking myself. Where are the Hezekiahs? Where are they? 
Who is looking at the body of Christ and the current condition of the people in God, the people of God, and saying, enough. This is not who we are. This is not Yahweh, God of Israel. God of Jerusalem. God of Judah. God of all nations. Seated high and enthroned. We've forgotten. You, my friend, have forgotten. Our fathers have forgotten. But no more. No longer. But instead we have a generation and a generation and a generation who says, well... The world's hard. Forgive us, God. If we humble ourselves and turn to you and turn from our wicked... That's all we do. Like a whiny little child. God, you know us. I'm so sorry. Please don't hurt us. Be kind. But we don't call anything what it is. But yet Christians... Make fun of the world who does that. Oh, there's no division. There's no black and white. There's no distinction. That's right. And you know why there isn't? Because there's no distinction from God's people from the world. There's no distinction there. So yes and amen, that's true. Because there's no distinction of God's people within and the world without. And so I'm saying, where are the Hezekiahs? Where? Where are they who say what it is? And listen, that's what I'm saying. I read these Old Testament accounts and I see the people of God that I know. That's what I see. That's what I feel in my gut. It's God, this is it. This is us. We're repeating the same sins of our forefathers that went before us and rebelled. We're not being Hezekiahs. We're being Ahaz. We've shut up the house of the Lord. And it's sitting in disrepair. And I'm telling you, I'm for, I firmly believe unless somebody comes and says, no more, it's going to stay that way. But we will see, and then I'm going to close this part here. We will see that when the word of the Lord comes through a man with a purpose, people come. People respond. We've already seen that in just a few verses. The king calls in the Levites, and they come. He says, consecrate. They consecrate. He says, clean up the house of the Lord. They say, we are going to clean up the house of the Lord. But you know what's happened, y'all, is nobody's telling anybody anything needs done. Everybody's so afraid, nobody wants to tell anybody what needs done anymore. So I say, no more. No longer. Who's going to move by the Spirit of God so that when we have a place, 
when we have a function, when we have an opportunity, now's the time. My father's Yahweh. And everybody better pay attention because my father's Yahweh and he's going to get glory on this earth in his house. And that's the smallest of, of beginnings of what I pray the Lord speaks to you through this as he's been speaking to me. Stay tuned for part two. I'm going to try to get all this done and all of it on as fast as I can. Amen.